Good morning. Yes, my children, they wanted to go to the children's wing, so they're going to be scoping out what kind of snacks you guys give out back there. That's usually the first thing they want to report on, so we'll see. Well, I am very happy to be here with you all this morning. So as Seth said, I I hope I'm no stranger to Wake Chapel. Wake Chapel is definitely not a stranger to me and my family. I've been down in Andrew now for eight years. I'm on staff, as Seth said, at Grace Community Church and been there with Pastor Brad Talley that many of you know as well. And I was at TVR for 10 years before that, as Seth mentioned. So it's neat to be here to see you all in your context. Um, Many times you all have been at camp. I have played putt-putt with you. I have preached to you. I have sat at the table with you in eight mills. And then we moved down here eight years ago and we came and we participated in Awana upward. And your church has been a blessing to our family since we lived here. And for the many years we were at camp, your church was a blessing to us because your church is a blessing to TVR as well. I love Wake Chapel because I love the people of Wake Chapel. When I walked in this morning, I, I see Jeff and I see Scott handing out bulletins. I see Chris in the back. Miss Marlene comes up and gives me a hug. And of course, my brother Seth, who I've spent uh, a lot of hours with over the years. I appreciate Wake Chapel. Well, I'm sad that, that Pastor Isaac's not able to be here today. I'm sad that he's not feeling well, but I am very grateful again that I get to be here with you all. And it's pretty neat because many of you have heard me preach uh, at TVR. I've gotten, again, to be with you, preach there in front of the stone fireplace, if you remember that place at TVR in the meeting room. And now I get to be here in your church this morning. So thank you for having me. This morning we're going to be in the book of Titus. So you can go ahead and open up to the book of Titus if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you all do. If not, the passage is going to be on the screen as well. So I brought slides, and you can uh, see that. The book of Titus is where we're going to be this morning. And the book of Titus is actually a letter written to Titus from the Apostle Paul. And Paul, he had gone, and he had preached through the island of Crete. That's where Titus was, this little island called Crete. So Paul, he goes to the island of Crete, and he's preaching the gospel. And whenever he left, he leaves Titus there. And he leaves Titus there for a certain reason. He wants Titus to establish churches with these new converts. Paul goes through preaching. People hear the word of God. People believe the word of God. And now they need a place to go and worship with the people of God. So Titus, Paul says, I want you to stay and establish these churches. And Paul, he's written to Titus. So it's neat that we get to peek in a little bit. God has preserved the book of Titus for us today. But originally it was written to a man named Titus. It's like we're reading his mail, but it's okay because God saved it for us to read. Paul's written this letter to Titus to give Titus direction and how to protect the teaching of the churches. Protect the teaching of the churches through the leadership of the churches so that all the believers in the churches can live godly lives. That's the purpose. So if we were to read the last seven verses of chapter one, we're going to see that wrong teaching leads to wrong living. If you were to skim it and look at it, that's, that's, that's essentially the summary there. If you hear wrong teaching, then, well, you are going to live wrongly. In that day, there are many different people in the island of Crete, just like today. Right here in this sanctuary, there are many different kinds of people right here. We have, we have male, we have female, we have young, we have old. Many different types of people in Crete. But there are two umbrellas that can summarize all the people in Crete. There are two umbrellas in which we all will fall under as well today at Wake Chapel in the year 2022. 
The two umbrellas are this. We have the umbrella of man's kingdom, and then we have the umbrella of God's kingdom. No matter what gender you are, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what divides us, we all fall under two umbrellas, not just within these walls, but outside the walls. In all of the world, we fall under two umbrellas. Either you are under man's kingdom or you are living under the rule of God. Both have their teachings. Both have what they believe most firmly. And both have their own goals. Under the kingdom of man is to live for ourselves. And under the kingdom of God is to give ourselves away and to live for what he wants. Just as we find ourselves today, the year 2022, they didn't creep back then to fall under one of two umbrellas, the rule of God or the rule of man. You see, there's always going to be people who live for themselves. There were back then, almost 2,000 years ago, people who say they live for God, yet their lives show else. Paul describes these people in chapter 1, verse 16. I'm going to adjust this a little bit. Verse 16 says this, They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. Paul knows. He knows that, well, the way you live, that proves what you believe. Do you want to know what someone believes? Look and see how they live. Paul's telling Titus, he's saying, it's important that those people that you're establishing the churches for, it's important that they live godly lives. Those who are under God's rule must have godly teaching so that they can live rightly. Titus, Paul is saying, the people's decisions matter. The people in the church, their reputation, it matters. The language they use, it matters. How they spend their money and where they spend their time, it matters. They need right teaching because wrong teaching leads to wrong living. But Paul is saying, Titus, put leaders into place to protect the teaching so that they have right teaching and so that they can live godly lives. Paul goes on in the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 2. He tells us what this right living looks like. So if the people get the right teaching, he gives us a snapshot. This is what the right living will look like. So pop quiz. Don't answer out loud. Don't raise your hand. I want you to take this quiz with me today. And let's see how we did with right living this week. Keep your answers private. Don't answer for your spouse either. (laughs) Older men, were you dignified and mature this week? Older women, were you reverent? Did you teach any younger women this week? Young women, were you good wives and good mothers this week? Young men, did you have self-control this week? Employees, of which most of us are, were you honest in all your dealings this week? Did you work hard this week? Did everyone, all of us here this morning, do we live this week renouncing evil? And do we live our most disciplined, righteous, and godly life? I don't think any of us got 100%. I'll tell you, I did not score a 100% on this quiz here when Paul explains to us what a godly life looks like. But here's the point. This is what I want you to hear. Yes, our behavior matters. Clearly, Paul is telling Titus how they live matters. But before he gets to how they live, he goes to how they believe. What they believe is what matters. And thanks be to God that the goal of the gospel is not your behavior. It works itself out. The goal of the gospel is what you believe. Are you under the rule of man or are you under the rule of God? Do you live for yourself or do you live for the Lord? 
Because the teaching of the good news of the gospel is this, that God saves sinners. He saves sinners by regenerating their heart. What we can't do, he comes in and does for us. Moving us. Taking us and moving us over from under the rule of man, of living our own life in our own way, and bringing us over, over unto the rule of God. Under his rule. The goal of the gospel is that Jesus wants to rule your life. When I teach my kids to do something, doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I tell them to do something that is completely unnatural for them to do. For us to read these instructions 1 through 10 of chapter 2, some of these things are completely unnatural for us to do. It's hard for a man to be mature at times. This is where the mothers can say amen, but we won't do that. Sometimes, even my children, I try to get them to do something that's completely unnatural to them. Uh, This past fall, we were at Campbell University. Our church isn't too far from Campbell. And if you've been to Campbell, the convocation center, there's a huge camel out front, if you've ever seen this camel. Well, kids like to climb on that camel. And then one of my children found their way on the top of this camel. And they couldn't get off. So they're stuck up on top of this camel. And I'm telling them, just slide off the camel and just, just... just follow my back. I got you. Just, just slide off the back onto me. We're going we're gonna to be good. This child would not have it. I'm telling this child to do something unnatural. Slide off the camel onto my back, and it'll be, it'll be okay. She wouldn't have it. And then finally, I, I get her attention. I have her look, look me in the eye. Trust me. Trust me. I'm going to catch you. You got to trust me. Now I want you to slide off the camel's back onto my back, and I'll get, get you down from here. My instructions were the same. Slide off my back. We're good. But something changed. She trusted me. She had to be told, I need you to trust me. I say all this to emphasize what the ti- book of Titus is clearly addressing is the importance of godly living. It's important to know that the people to whom Titus is writing, he's telling them it's important to know that you need to have sound doctrine. You need to believe the good news of the gospel. And what I want you to hear this morning, I want you to hear from me that how you live matters. Yes, how you live matters. But first, what you believe matters. Trust the message of the one that Paul reveals to us, Jesus. Because believing in right teaching, it's going to enable right living. You must trust first before you can obey. You must believe so that you can be saved. Believing in Jesus will then enable you to live for Jesus. Titus in this book He's dealing with new converts, those who have trusted Christ. They have received, they have believed in the message of the gospel of Jesus. And they trust Jesus. So Paul's saying, Titus, now that they trust Jesus, I want them to know how to live for Jesus. And Paul wants all Cretans who have received Jesus to live for Jesus until they are with Jesus. And to do this, they needed to know that the one who saved them He also will train them. He will sustain them and he will 
seal them. That's the main point of the message I want you to know this morning. I want you to know that the one who saves us will also train us, sustain us, and seal us. Because living a godly life is a tall order. If we just flipped open our Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 2, and we read the first 10 verses, this is a tall order. We might find ourselves like some of the Cretan believers may have found themselves when they received Paul's letter, saying, "Uh, how are we going to do this? How can we measure up and live this way? These new Christians were asking, how can I live a godly life? And you may be asking the same question this morning. How can we who have received Jesus Practically, how can we live for Jesus until Jesus returns? And Paul knew that we'd be asking. Paul knew this is a tall order, and he gives us the answers we need. This is how. Grace and glory, Jesus. That's how. Grace and glory, Jesus. The one who saves us also trains us, sustains us, and seals us. Grace and glory, Jesus. So our text this morning, the book of Titus, chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, something I may have in common with some of you. We've already said many things we have in common. We've, we've played upward basketball together, some of us. Uh, Awana is meaningful to us. We've been to TVR together. We have many things in common with many of you this morning. But something I may have in common with you also is that you love Christmas. Maybe it's just me. I'm very happy that we're only six months away from the month of November. Because the month of November is when I begin celebrating Christmas. Um, honestly, I'll tell the truth. I usually have my first glass of eggnog in October. As soon as it hits the shelves, my wife knows to buy eggnog. And that gets me ready. I'm ready for the Christmas decorations. But April, my wife usually holds me, holds me out. Um, I, have a, I have a plan this year. I'm trying to pitch it to her and get her to endorse it. Is that uh, for, for Halloween, I want to set up our house for Christmas. Christmas decorations will be known as the Christmas house. And turn on all the decorations. And then we'll just kill the lights for a couple of weeks after that. And then we'll fire them back up mid-November, ready to go. Uh, but that's, that's me. I love Christmas. Well, most Christians, their favorite holiday is either Christmas or it's Easter, which we just celebrated recently, of course. But whatever your favorite holiday is, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Easter, I have great news for you today. Because our focus today in this sermon, beginning with the first verse, it is a Christmas sermon. Yeah, today it is also an Easter sermon. Paul knew the Cretans that they would be asking Titus how they can live this godly life Paul describes. I mean, it's a tall order, verses 1 through 10. How in the world can we do this? And the Lord gave us the letter of Titus because we too are asking, and he knew we would be asking. So here's the answer, and it's your Christmas sermon. It's also your Easter sermon. Here, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. That's how. 
<laughs> bringing salvation for all people. Merry Christmas. Happy Easter to all of you. The grace of God has appeared. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. That's my argument for why we need eggnog and Cadbury eggs year-round. The grace of God has appeared. So what is the grace of God? The grace of God is the gift of salvation that you and I could not and did not earn. We already recited it this morning with the catechism. I love that you all are doing this. What we did not and what we could not earn, that's the grace of God. God is holy. And because God is holy, news alert, you and I aren't holy apart from God. Since God is holy, he must pour out his wrath on all those who aren't holy because they are against God. Under the kingdom of man, against God. Under the kingdom of God, submitted to God. Naturally, we are against God under the kingdom of man. And God would not be holy if he let unholy man exist. He must pour out his wrath on those who are against him. Everyone picks their rule or God's rule. You're under one of two umbrellas. But out of God's love for us, he made a way for sinful man to be in his presence, the grace, the mercy of God. And the grace of God came to us. The grace of God came to us, appeared to us as a person. God sent his son, Jesus. God sent him to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live. God sent Jesus to die the death that you and I deserve. And then Jesus defeated, defeated death. He rose from the grave victoriously. Now, how can we sum this up? I mean, this is glorious news. The grace of God has appeared for you and for me. How can we sum this up? The grace of God has appeared in God's Grace saves grace. Grace, the grace of God has appeared. Who is this grace for? Who is this grace for? It is for all people. <laughs> Meaning it is offered to all people. To you. To those who aren't here this morning. To our neighbors, to our family, to the least. It's evident in the New Testament that some are going to reject this offer of salvation. Some are going to reject God's grace. But God's grace is available to all who will receive the good news of Jesus. To all who will stop trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus. God's grace is offered to them. His life in their place, his death in their place, his resurrection, all is offered to those who believe in him. I mean, even in the previous 10 verses of chapter 2, we see a sampling. I love it of who this grace is offered to. Many different groups within the church. We see the first 10 verses, young, old, male, female, slave, free. The gospel is available to all. I love the diversity in the Bible. Just even the sampling we get here, all nations, all ages, all vocations, all times, they are all one people sharing in one future under one Savior, Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection for us. God's grace, it has appeared. This is great news. So how can you live a godly life? How? Well, first, you must open up your empty hands of faith. Saying, I have nothing to bring to the table. I have nothing I can offer God. 
My hands are empty because all I can do is receive. All I can do is receive the grace that he gives, that he brings for all people, even you, even me. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I'll never forget, I grew up in Alabama. When I was in high school, I got a job. It was on this farm locally, and I was clearing fence lines, feeding horses, uh, keeping, the, keeping the barns up, and things like that. One of the necessary tools of the job was this big Kubota tractor. To move all the hay, to get things done on the property, I needed to be able to use this tool made available to me, this big Kubota tractor. I wanted to drive the tractor. What guy does not want to drive a tractor? I wanted to drive the tractor. I needed to drive the tractor. I didn't know how to drive the tractor. Well, the man of whom the, the farm belonged, he, he said, well, I'll teach you. We, we hopped on the tractor, went for a ride. That was that. I learned how to drive the tractor. The same man helped me during a period of life where I needed to learn how to do a lot of things I didn't know how to do. <laughs> Working on a farm, I needed to know how to put a chain back on a saw. I needed to know how to mend fences. I needed to know how to change a flat tire. Things break. I needed to learn how to fix them. He taught me. Many of you here today may say, I just don't know how. I know that God has called me to live for him. I just don't know how. I want you to know that the grace of God didn't appear to save you, to just leave you to figure it out. No, that's not how the Lord does things. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God trains us. After being saved, you know you need to live a godly life. No one needs to tell you that you know how to, that you need to live a godly life, but you might not know how to. No matter how young, no matter how old, you might just not know how to. The grace of God that he has shown us in Jesus shows us what a godly life looks like. He's given us his word that reveals to us Jesus. And the grace of God enables us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. To live a life of saying yes to God in his ways and a life of saying no to our selfish ways. Even though I thought I was trained to work on the farm, I, I still made mistakes. Some of you may relate to that. Even in this Christian life, you're like, I've been living it for years, but I still make mistakes. I'll never forget one night I bought this 1986 Datsun truck. And I, I drove it over to the farm, and I was showing the man who owned the farm this, this new little truck that I got, and it was a tiny little truck. It was a good truck, though, five-speed. And I raise up the back seat to look behind it, and guess what I found? Some old bottle rockets. Well, a teenage guy who just found a bunch of bottle rockets in a truck, what do you think I did? I immediately pulled out my lighter, and I lit a bottle rocket, and I chunked it up in the air, because that's what we did. You just didn't know where it was going to land. It was kind of fun until that bottle rocket shot off into the nearby barn where I just spent all day stacking square bales of hay. I knew better. I still made mistakes. I had to deal with the consequences of my mistakes. That night, I had to, I had to stay up all night in that barn, making sure that nothing caught fire because I could not find that bottle rocket anywhere to save my life. The man who hired me, who saw me do this dumb thing, he didn't fire me. No, he wouldn't do that to me. 
I should have known better. I did know better. But he showed me grace. And you know what? My training, it continued. Perfection isn't possible. Neither is it expected. And that's why grace saves. It has appeared to save us. But it also enables us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, so that we can live an upright, self-controlled, and godly life. You see, the training we received brings about an enablement and also an expectation for a godly life. Why? So that others, too, can know such grace. A grace that saves and a grace that trains. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want to point out to you that verse 11, glorious, your Easter and Christmas verse 11, that's in the past. Verse 12, it's our present right now being trained. And verse 11 is our future. Verse 11, the grace of God came to save us. Verse 12, the grace of God trains us to live for him today. In verse 13, God's glorious return, that is our hope for tomorrow. We're presently in between right now the appearance of the grace of God, verse 11, and the appearing of the glory of God that is to come, verse 13. Charles Spurgeon, he says, we are compassed about behind and before with the appearings of our Lord. Behind us is our trust, but before us is our hope. Behind us is the Son of God in humiliation, but before us is the great God, our Savior, in his glory. Jesus has appeared in grace, and he will reappear in glory. How can we, who have received Jesus, how can we live for Jesus until the return of Jesus? By receiving the salvation that God gives in his grace by being trained in the grace of God, and now by setting our hope in the sure coming of the glory of God. That's how. What we put our hope in makes a difference in how we live. This past fall, I planted fescue grass seed in my yard. It's really shady sowed the seed all over this just bare dirt. And at first, initially, I watered, I watered the seed twice a day. And I spent the time dragging the hoses and setting up the sprinkler because I knew that grass would come. To my kids, it's just like I was watering dirt. They couldn't see. They didn't know. But I knew that the grass would come. And while the appearing of the glory of God that will come, it's not at all dependent on us, like my fescue lawn was dependent on me, which now is full and lush and green. Our confidence in what is to come, though, will affect our actions. It'll affect our efforts. It'll affect our motivations. The coming appearing of the glory of the Lord that will come is something that you and I can be certain about. And that hope sustains us. We fix our eyes on that and we know it. And when we wake up, we think of it. Throughout the day, we think of it. When things are hard, we remember it. This hope sustains us. We water by striving in God's grace, and we wait with hope for what only God and will bring about. 
That is that the coming glory of our God is the hope that sustains us. The coming glory of God is our hope that will sustain us. Something I should, I should point out here is just as the grace of God our Father was visible in the appearing of Jesus. The grace of God has appeared. How did the grace of God come to us? Jesus. And now we see the glory of God the Father will reappear with Jesus. Moses' face, it had to be hidden, if you remember, from the Old Testament. Had to be hidden from the glory of God. But get this, whenever Jesus appears, and he will appear, you can bank on it. We will see him as he is. Imagine it. Right now, think about it. The glory of our Father will appear, Jesus, and we will see his face. And what you imagine now, one day you will see. Before vacation, many times I'll close my eyes at night and I'll imagine what is to come, what it will look like. And sometimes whenever I'm there, I'll remember back to what I was imagining and what really is. And I love to see the difference. What we imagine now, the coming of the glory of God, we one day will see. That gives hope. You can put your hope in that truth. You can keep your hope in that truth. That the glory of God, it will appear. I grew up in a, a Beulah Land singing church. Have you all ever heard the song Beulah Land? I love the song Beulah Land. I would sing on Sunday night at our church the lyrics, Beulah Land, I'm longing for you, and someday on thee I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal, Beulah Land, sweet Beulah Land. I wanted to go to heaven on Sunday night. Then I'd go home and I'd go to bed. I'd wake up Monday morning. I would go to math class. There's this little trailer that was sitting next to the train tracks. And then that morning whistle would blow. And every time, every Monday, I'd mistake that whistle for the trump of God. <laughs> I'd listen for the voice of the archangel. I'd wait to see if the dead in Christ were rising because I just didn't know if I would be too. I was scared to death. I was scared to death. I feared the return of the Lord. His coming glory, though, it gives a people a hope that sustains. But those who do not trust in God, those who haven't completely surrendered their life to God, those who are still under the umbrella of man's rule, living for what they want, this doesn't sound like good news to them. <laughs> the return of God is a threat, not a hope that sustains the return of God will bring about a fear that haunts them. And if that is you here this morning, then I want you to hear the words of verse 14. And I want you to believe them. And I want you to take comfort in them. That Jesus who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are jealous, who are zealous for good works. Are you afraid of Jesus' return? Maybe you say, Ricky, you just don't know what all I've done. Some of you might say, Ricky, you just don't know how little I've done. I'm not ready for Jesus to return yet. I want you to look at the words in verse 14, and I want you to know that Jesus redeems from all lawlessness. However much you've done, however little you have done, Jesus redeems from all lawlessness. If you will just let go of how little you've done or how much you've done, and you will open up your empty hands of grace, 
and receive the salvation that he gives, then you'll see that Jesus, he's not saying, hey, I'll just look over, I'll overlook how little you've done, or you know, I'll just overlook how much bad you've done. Jesus isn't saying, I'll just fudge the numbers to make it right. No, Jesus is saying, I will redeem you. What you have done, what you haven't done, it just doesn't matter. Because it is about what Jesus has done. Your debt has been paid if you've been redeemed. Your punishment has been dealt if you have been redeemed. Jesus took your sin and he now is your reward. Your life's no longer your own. Your future is no longer your own. You are now his. And you share in all the benefits and you share in all of the future. If you have been redeemed, then at the cross, your debt, it was stamped as paid. And at the resurrection, your future will be sealed. And at his glorious return, you will be delivered. Signed, sealed, delivered. If you have been redeemed, you are his. That is a hope that sustains. You can live a godly life because the one who saves us, he trains us. He sustains us and he seals us, redeemed, freed from lawlessness. Not just free from the punishment of sin. You'll begin to see that you are freed from the power of sin too. You don't want the sin anymore. You hate it. It disgusts you. Desire to be freed from the power of sin. Becoming freed from the power of sin. As adopted children of God, paid for by the blood of Jesus, you will find now that your closet is stocked full with all that you need to live this life. See verses 1 through 10. Again, chapter 2, to see the beginning of what a godly life looks like. It comes about because right believing leads to right behaving. Right living. Growing up, I, I love the movie Free Willy. And if you've seen Free Willy, then you know that this orphan boy, he's adopted. And when he goes to the new foster parents, he, he finds that, well, first of all, there's a baseball on the pillow, which I thought was neat. I love baseball. But then this boy picks up the baseball and throws it through the window. I would not do that. I would have kept the baseball. But then he turns around and he sees that his closet is stocked full with all that he needs. He now has a new life. And what comes with that new life is a new wardrobe. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people who are his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And if you are a child of God, you too find that your closet is now stocked for all that you need. There is no need to fear the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because you are sealed in Christ. And that truth being sealed in Christ is because you have been redeemed by Christ. And that is as sure as the return of the glory of God through Jesus our Savior. It will happen. Right now, you may have trouble imagining it. How can I live a godly life? If you are redeemed, it is your future. It is becoming your present. It is who you are. And when the sun finally burns out, and one day it will, you will be with the Lord. For those who are redeemed, imagine it now, it will be. The truth is, there are many, though, I imagine, who aren't ready to turn to Jesus. Because they're still just not quite willing to bend their knee to the Lordship of Jesus. To move from under man's umbrella of living for yourself and living for the world 
You must bend your knee to Jesus. There will come a day, though, if you don't, you will be made to. And at that time, it will be too late. It'll be too late for those who haven't willingly bent the knee to Jesus. It will be too late for them at that point to open up their empty hands of grace to receive God's salvation. Because they've kept their fists closed too tight so that they wouldn't lose all that the world offered them. They worked to keep control. And they kept their hands clenched tight. The same was in Crete 2,000 years ago. The same as it is today in 2022, many will profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Verse 116, again, from Titus, tells us many profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable. They're disobedient. They're unfit for any good work. And Paul's telling Titus, he's saying, I know those people are out there. So established churches have godly leaders so that the people know how to live godly lives so a watching world can know the true God. Christians live in front of a watching world in a way that it matters so that the world can see that the grace of God has come. Live in front of the world, not only so that they can see that the grace of God has come, but so that they too can know that the appearing of the glory of God is to come and so that they could be ready. We are to live godly lives today. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Clearly, Paul wanted Titus to tell the Cretans who had received Jesus, saying, hey, I want you to live for Jesus until Jesus returns. In return, he will in all his glory. Live for Jesus. How can we live for Jesus those who have received Jesus live for Jesus until he returns because the one who saves us, he also trains us. He sustains us and he seals us. And our motivation for this godly living isn't to show what we can do for God, but it's based on what God has done for us. We hear it, the message of Jesus. We receive it. We believe it. And while we strive to live godly lives now, we know that Jesus, who is the glory of God, one day he will righteously rule when he appears. And at that time, and you can set your hope on it, you can be certain at that time, we will finally and completely be a people purified for his own possession. And those who give their lives to the Lord from under the rule of man's umbrella to under the rule of God's umbrella would have it no other way. <laughs> a people for his possession, not me, Lord, all you. Therefore, let us who are redeemed say with confidence this morning, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for keeping us. Father, for any who have not trusted in you, Lord, I pray they will hear and believe. For those of us who have trusted in you, Day in, day out, Lord, let us cling to the hope, the truth of your word, to die daily, to surrender more and more. Lord, to receive what you give, the grace of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.